We're in Luke chapter 2, and I get to preach on, we get to study and, and spend time with one of my absolute favorite people in the Bible, uh, the prophetess Anna. If there is anyone in this Luke chapter 1 and 2 narrative on Jesus' birth who savors the birth of the Redeemer, it's Anna. And truly, if I could meet anybody in this life from our Bible, forget the life to come when we spend time with people who we read about now in the Bible, if I could, if I could meet anyone, it would definitely be Paul. And we would talk shop about planning a church in Columbia, where to go next. If I could pick a second person, it would be, shockingly, Anna, the prophetess Anna. And you're going to see why as we study this text. But before we get to it, let's spend some time praying together. Heavenly Father, we just ask that you would give us spiritual hands to grab a hold of this thing. Spiritual eyes and ears and hearts to see and hear and understand the word that you have for us. Let us not just... Think about Anna and the remarkable woman that she is, but allow her to be a signpost, to be a trumpet, to be a person jumping up and, and up and down and pointing us to your son, Jesus. And I pray that you would do that for us this morning in our hearts. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 36. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Israel. You know... Um, we're going to talk about the profile and the passion of Anna today. We get, we get a little bit of background about her, and then we're going to go on to talk about what she's passionate about. It's interesting that more than any other person that Luke has introduced so far in chapters 1 and 2, he gives the most background on Anna. Isn't that surprising? I mean, more than Zechariah and Elizabeth, the parents of John the Baptist, more than Mary and Joseph, the earthly parents of Jesus, more than Caesar Augustus, more than Simeon, more than anybody... Luke gives us the most background about Anna, and when we come to our Bibles, we're detectives, and we're asking questions of our Bibles, and the question we need to pause and ask here is, why would Luke do this? Why would Luke take so much time to introduce a woman we're never going to hear from again? And I hope as we study this text, we're going to see the answer to that question. And so here's what he says about her in verse 36. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. So there he shares four things with us. We hear that she's a prophetess. That is, she's filled with the Spirit. She speaks things that God reveals to her. She has divine knowledge. Now, here's something interesting about the Gospel of Luke. I was reading an essay that pointed this out. The Holy Spirit is almost entirely absent from the book of Luke. Isn't that surprising? Luke chapter 3 through 24, the Spirit shows up very little. Where the Spirit does come is in, in, in Luke's second book, the book of Acts. And that shouldn't be that surprising. After Pentecost, the Spirit is all over the place. So the Holy Spirit occurs and shows up and is mentioned six more times, six times over, in Acts than it is in Luke chapters 3 through 24. The one exception, the one place where we see a bunch of activity of the Holy Spirit in the Gospel of Luke is chapters 1 and 2. 
The Spirit's fingerprints are all over the coming of Jesus. And this is one of those places. Because at Pentecost, Peter is going to preach, and he's going to quote from Joel chapter 2, and he's going to say this promise. I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh, and your sons and daughters shall prophesy. Sons and daughters are going to prophesy. Last week we heard from Simeon, a son who prophesies. This week we're going to hear from Anna, a daughter who prophesies. And, and, and as we get to know who Jesus is, even at his birth, this is like a pre-Pentecost foretaste. This is what the world is going to be like when Jesus comes and he dies and he rises again from the dead and he sends his Holy Spirit. People are going to be filled with the Holy Spirit and they're going to speak things of God. That's what we get to taste here. Well, we learn her name is Anna. That's the equivalent of the Hebrew name Hannah. And she's a daughter of Phanuel. Now, the first time we hear this name, Phanuel, is in Genesis chapter 32, which is also the first time we hear the name Israel. And it's a really interesting, really bizarre story in Genesis chapter 32. I, I've been reading Genesis in my morning time with the Lord. And this is the story where Jacob is, is kind of running away from his father-in-law, Laban. He's tricked Laban. Laban's tricked him. They have a bad relationship. He's getting away from his father-in-law. He's going back to his hometown, which means facing Esau, another person, his brother, who he's tricked. And he's not sure what's going to happen when he visits with Esau. He's not sure if he's going to make it out of there alive. And so he's sending ahead of himself presents, right? He sends flocks and he sends sheep and just gifts to pacify Esau so that when he gets to him, you know, Esau will be appeased. And, and there's a night that comes as he's traveling and as he's wrestling with all of this. Um, and, and it's this crazy story in, in Genesis chapter 32 because he meets with a man and they start wrestling which is what you do in the countryside of Israel when you meet somebody. They're wrestling through the night. Jacob won't let go of this guy. He prevails over this guy. And we learn in some bizarre way, this man that he's wrestling with, this stranger who never shares his name, is God, a representation of God. And, and Jacob says, I want you to bless me. And this is where God calls Jacob Israel, and he blesses him and, and re renews his covenant with him. Well, Jacob, when all of this happens, he says, this is crazy. I'm going to name this place a special name. Something, something amazing has happened here. I'm going to name this place Phanuel, which means the face of God. And he says, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. Fast forward thousand some years later, Anna, the daughter of the face of God, walks up to little baby Jesus here in the temple, and she beholds the Son of God face to face. Isn't that incredible? That's probably just a random coincidence. Luke probably didn't know that in Genesis, but that is crazy that, that she sees it. So she's from the tribe of Asher too. Verse 36 and 37 says, She was advanced in years. That's the Bible's euphemism, nice way of saying Anna was really old. Having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin and then as a widow, and my ESV Bible says, until she was 84. Now, I'm sorry to do this to us this morning, but we're going to do a little math pop quiz. I know some of you guys still have nightmares about this, but we need to do a little math to find out where, where Anna is. We know that the Bible says that she was married. She was married for seven years from the time that she was a virgin. And women in her day got married around 14 years old. So, so Anna was married probably around 14. She lived with her husband for seven years before he died. And she became a widow at 21. 
And then one way to read this passage, the way my ESV Bible says, is then as a widow until she was 84. So when we meet her, she's 84 years old. Another way, and maybe the stronger of the two readings in the Greek, is to say then as a widow for 84 years. So you take the 21 years she's already lived, and you add the 84 years that she spends in the temple, and you come up with 105 years old. That's how old Anna could be in this passage. Now, that doesn't make or break the text. You could read it either way. The Greek lends itself to either way. Either age is possible but unlikely in their day. Either age would warrant Luke saying, look, this, this woman is well advanced in years. But I lean towards the reading that Luke is making a big deal of this because it really was a big deal. She was 105 years old, and that's what she's been doing. So you got to ask yourself, what is a spry 105-year-old single gal doing downtown Jerusalem on a Friday night? Well, verse 37 tells us, She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. That's what Anna does. Anna worships. She fasts and she prays and she goes to temple and she gives her life to worship. We don't have to take this literally. She may or may not have a place to stay at the temple, but the Bible tells us she spent all of her time, all of her waking hours, communing with God, worshiping God. Can you imagine meeting a woman who has spent the last 84 years spending time in the presence of God? Can you imagine what it's like to, to sit with her and talk with her and hear the gleaning she has from that communion? That's, that's why I want to spend time with a woman like Anna. That's why I want to get to know this woman. Because what an incredible story. What an incredible story of faith to hear this. Now, I want to pause because something happens to us when we encounter a person of radical faith. Something happens to us. It's, it's a universal human temptation. When we meet somebody remarkable like Anna, we try to put them in a category. And we try to separate people out as sinners and as saints. Put them in extremes to distance them from ourselves. So we do this when we see a sinner. If we read about some kind of heinous crime in the news or some minister of the church who's confessed an awful sin, we put that person in the extreme and we say, that person's a sinner. I could never do something like that. I, I, I can't even believe that they would do that. I, I, I couldn't do anything like that. We do the same thing with saints, right? We put them in a different category. And so we, we, we see the Mother Teresas of the world, the Annas of the New Testament, and we say, that person is different than me. I, I, I couldn't be like that person. That person is a saint. And when we do that, we distance both of these extremes, and we think we create this middle ground where normal people dwell, people like you and me, just average Joes who go to work in the morning and come home at night. And, that, and that's who we are. And, and when we do that, when we think about sinners and saints in the extreme, we create this middle ground that, that we try to stay safe by. This is a safe place. We're, we're not going to stumble into heinous sin, and we're not going to be this radical Jesus freak. We're going we're to stay right here, and those kind of people are different than us, as if they're made up of something different, as if, as if that minister who was caught up in adultery, had always said that about his life. You know what? This is kind of where my life had led. I had always been in the direction of committing adultery. And, and that's where a sinner ends up. As if a righteous person is of a different constitution, different model, bodily makeup. They've got more fiber in their diet. And that kind of explains why, why they kind of do those, those radical things for Jesus. Never, ever, ever, ever 
make that extreme distinguishing mark. Never put somebody in the camp of that person's a sinner and this person is a saint and there's such a thing as a middle ground where I dwell. We can never do that. Friend, do you know that there is no sin so heinous that outside of Christ's mercy you and I couldn't commit? Do you believe that? And there is no communion with God, depth of worship, outside of his grace that we can't experience. That doesn't happen. That applies to all of us who who are here. To say that I could never do something is to say that I'm not bad enough. And to say I could never experience this kind of communion with God is to say God's not good enough. We can never make these extremes. We can never distance ourselves from these people. Well, even if we don't do that with Anna, even if we don't try to separate her out and put her in this different category of saint, there's another thing we do. The other thing we do is we try to explain people's worship away in circumstantial terms. Well, this is easy for Anna to do. She doesn't have kids. She doesn't have expectations on her. She can lead a life of worship like this. Don't, don't we do that with each other? Don't we kind of eye each other up and, and say, man, of course that, that girl is worshipful and thankful and always has a smile. I mean, look at her life. It's perfect. Have you read her blog? Her kids are obedient. Her husband is fine. She's got a three-bedroom ranch that, that I would always want. If my life were like that, I'd worship all the time too. We do that with guys. I mean, this guy, of course, he volunteers at the church. His business is thriving. His wife is gorgeous. Uh, he's never sliced a ball in his life. I mean, if my life was like that, I'd show up at the church too, and I'd do things too. We, we explain that kind of stuff away in circumstantial terms, which is interesting because that's the exact thing that Satan does with Job, right? When he talks to God, he says, of course, Job is a righteous man. He's got everything. He's got a house. He's got a family. He's got wealth. He's got everything he needs. Now, Satan is telling God that because he wants to be sneaky. But I also think that Satan genuinely could not imagine how somebody apart from circumstance would delight in worshiping God. He just couldn't get it. And we, and we do that with each other. We explain this away. And when we do that, when we do the sinner or saint extreme, when we base it on circumstance, here's what we're doing. We're taking the Holy Spirit out of that worshipful life, and we're trying to put in natural circumstances. We're trying to explain what is happening in natural terms because we're not experiencing it, and we can't fathom it. Don't do that with Anna this morning. Don't chalk her up as this two-dimensional flanograph figure that just kind of floats into the temple and worships and prays and fasts and floats out of that. Anna does not have that kind of luxury. Anna has not lived that kind of life. And Luke gives us her background to remind us of just that. I mean, dream of all dreams. Anna uh, was married when she was 14. Anna grew up like every girl grows up. She, she thought about marriage. She played house with brothers and sisters. She, she noticed boys. She talked about her wedding day. And she was married. She was married at 14. And she spent seven years with her husband when tragedy struck this young couple. She's 21 years old. And her husband dies. And she becomes a widow. And she loses a spouse, a home, Her income and her place in society, all of those things were devastating for a young woman growing up in first century Israel. Widowhood could almost be like a death sentence to somebody in first century Israel. You you didn't work to make a living. Your husband worked. You don't have a place in society without your husbands. And there's not a huge market for men who are looking for a once widowed woman. This was a devastating time in her life. 
There's no mention in the text that she had kids or that she had a family to go back to that was still living that she could live with. And so regardless of whether those things are true or not, the world has just dropped out from under Anna's feet. She had everything, and now all of it is gone in the blink of an eye. Do you think Anna, like Jacob in Genesis chapter 32, wrestled with God? Do you think Anna, when her husband died at 21 years old, began to ask questions like, God, does God even see this? Does God even hear me? If God really cared about me and, and if he really wanted a relationship to me with me, why would he let such a tragic thing happen in my life? Does he care? Does he hear me? Anna wrestled with God. It says that she spent those 84 years in the temple don't you think those first few years in the temple, all she could do was cry herself to sleep at night? What's it like to be without anyone in the world and to be wholly alone? If you're writing a theology on suffering, a theology on waiting, a theology on broken dreams, you have got to wrestle with the person of Anna because she is experiencing these things. I don't think Anna took up fasting and prayer and visiting the temple because she was this spiritual giant who was unfazed by things that happened to her in her life. I think she began doing these spiritual disciplines out of absolute desperation. I don't think Anna had a leg to stand on. And the only thing she could think to do was spend time in the presence of her heavenly father. That's what happens with a sufferer. When we, when we meet with somebody as a sufferer, somebody who's wrestling with whether anything God has said about himself could possibly be true, we are talking to someone, if they are a Christian, who is deeply malnourished. You don't make up a steak dinner and leave it on the table and say, I'll come back tomorrow and see how you're doing. When you sit with a sufferer, you pull out Gerber baby food, and you heat it up in the microwave, and you sit down next to him, and you say, if you could just take one bite. Just, just one bite of this. That's what it looks like to suffer and walk with the Lord. I think spiritual disciplines like fasting and prayer began in Anna's life, this sufferer's life, like a baby's breath on the embers of her soul. We don't know when a believer experiences deep suffering if they will turn towards the Lord or away from the Lord. We don't know if these gentle coals in Anna's heart will be blown by spiritual disciplines and communion with the Lord or if they'll go out forever. We don't know that. But I think in these early days of Anna's life, the Lord used these things to just blow a little breath on these coals, to just, just see them stoked a little bit, to, to, to connect her to himself and to lead her through awful suffering with himself. And I think... After years and years and years of fasting and praying and worshiping in the temple, that that little baby's breath, man, that turned into a wind. A wind that blew and it stoked this spirit-filled, single-minded flame in Anna that made her about one thing and only one thing in this life. Worship. That's what Anna wanted to do. That's what she wanted to be about. That was her single-mindedness, was worship of the living God. Here is a woman who could look you in the eye, it doesn't matter who you are, sinner or saint or heretic or worshiper or someone who is following the Lord or depressed or anxious. It doesn't matter who you are. She would look you in the eye and say to you, I have lost absolutely everything. And I have found what it means to gain it back and gain it back a thousandfold. 
I know what it's like to walk with God. I know what it's like to experience him in suffering and in joy. And if she said that to you, she would be paraphrasing what Jesus will say to us several years later from this point. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. What is a profit a man to gain the whole world and to forfeit his soul? Anna would say, I've given it all up. I've lost everything. And I found it a thousandfold in my heavenly father. That's who Anna is. That's her background. That's the twists and turns in her life that have brought her up to this point in this temple that we talked about last week. Mary and Joseph coming to the table to do sacrifices. Simeon coming up and meeting this couple. And then we meet Anna, who's joining the mix. And this fireball of a woman walks up to this group as they're meeting together. And, and sees Simeon talking with this family. And maybe she overhears this. Now, she has been praying and fasting and worshiping in the temple for 84 years. And if there is ever an understatement in the Bible of what is happening here, it's in our text right now. Because Luke says, she began to give thanks to God. Really, Luke? It wouldn't have killed you to give us one or two more sentences. Anna, we don't know. Was she a puddle of tears at this point? Was she dancing on the money changers' tables? At 105, can you do cartwheels? Because Anna is seeing the redemption of Israel for the first time in 84 years, and she is stoked. I mean, if we only had Simeon in this story of the temple, Simeon would say his piece, he would say his prophecy, and then he would recede into the background. Anna's not like that. She ain't going to go out quietly. Anna sees baby Jesus, and what does she do? She turns to the person next to her and the person next to him and the person next to her, and she begins telling people about the redemption of Israel. Worship fuels mission. A lifetime of worship, of communing with the Father, of spending time in spiritual disciplines stokes this flame in Anna and it fuels her mission. It fuels her joy to serve and to talk about the Savior. Some of us get a little squeamish about spiritual disciplines. We don't like to talk too much about prayer and fasting and carving out 15 or 30 minutes a day to spend with the Lord because it smacks of legalism. Like we start to do those things because we want God to love us more and that's a bad road to go down. So we don't talk about it. We don't make it a big point in our life. We don't encourage each other to do it. What an absolute tragedy. Look at what Anna is doing. Anna has spent this time communing with the Lord. She has spent the time in discipline, fasting and savoring Christ above food and above everything else, above finding a second husband. She has savored Christ. And what does that do? That fuels, that inspires her mission. She can't help but share about it. If there's any person in the New Testament who could turn the conversation back on herself, it would be Anna. She would be the one to say, you know what, I've kind of spent 84 years in fasting and prayer and I've got some things to share about myself and how I've how I've come down this road. I mean, she could write a memoir. Anna doesn't want to talk about Anna when she gets a chance, when she meets people in temple, when she when she experiences what it looks like to see God face to face. That's all she wants to talk about. That's all she wants to share with people around her worship fuels Anna's mission. 
the more we exhort each other to this kind of worship, the more we experience and do this kind of worship at Sunday and where we are for the rest of the week, the more we exhort each other in spiritual disciplines of praying and fasting and spending this time before the Father, the more those disciplines make us fishers of men. The more the thing that occupies our imagination and our joy and our delight during the week is the thing that overflows and we can't help talk about. We're not here to talk about ourselves. We're not here to talk about the disciplines we do during the week. But I tell you, and Anna tells you, that these things inspire in her soul. They fan a flame in her soul to be single-minded about one thing, worshiping the Heavenly Father and sharing that with others. Let's pray together. Lord, I know even now, even as we talk about Anna and the tragedy in her life, that many of us are sitting here this morning with deep and dark tragedies. Maybe that we've shared with somebody else. Maybe that we haven't even done so yet. Oh, Father, I pray that you would meet with us, that you would comfort us, that you would shepherd us like you did your daughter Anna. And I pray that for all of us, you would stoke in us this fire of single-minded worship to you. And I pray that it would be the kind of worship that draws us to share about you with other people. And we ask this in your son's name. Amen.